we'd been to the cinema to see the latest Star Wars movie. And as we walked back to the underground station, we chatted and basically disagreed about the movie's strengths and weaknesses. But oddly enough, this led us onto a discussion about whether or not God exists. He pointed me to his iPhone screen. The Kindle app was open and I could see books in his library by authors like Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. These authors are not friendly towards Christianity. You can't pull the wool over my eyes, Stuart. I know the truth. There is no God. But if you want to convince me otherwise, I'm going to ask you for one thing. What's that? I replied. He answered, Give me supernatural evidence that God exists. Show me real, concrete proof of the supernatural. Then I'll believe. My mind raced for a moment and then the response popped into my head and I nodded at him quickly. Okay, fine. Here is where I'm going to begin. Welcome to Respond. Here's your host, Stuart Gray. Respond comes out of my experience as a Christian. Sometimes I've had opportunities to talk about the reasons why Christianity makes sense to me. Other times, I've not had these opportunities, but I wish I had. My aim for this podcast is maybe to open up issues that you might have if you're unconvinced about Christianity so far. And perhaps it'll also give the already convinced some help talking about Christianity with interested friends. Hey, how you doing? You know, if there's one thing I love, it's a story set in space. And if, if there's time travel going on too, I'm happy. At the risk of delving into real mind-bending territory, this episode we're going to consider what the beginning of the universe might have been like, and more importantly, how this might answer my friend's challenge to me to identify one supernatural thing that God has ever done. We're going to be engaging with a, a Christian philosopher by the name of William Lane Craig, and we'll also listen in to a discussion that I had on this recently with some friends. You know, it's often been said that the beginning of the universe can only basically be explained using science. After all, we're talking about planets, matter and forces that are really out there. And scientists do a great job today of exploring the universe that already exists. The late Stephen Hawking, in the last book that he ever wrote before he died, said this, I think the universe was spontaneously created out of nothing, according to the laws of science. And if you accept, as I do, that the laws of nature are fixed, then it doesn't take long to ask, 
What role is there for God? Now, Professor Hawking was one of the most brilliant scientists our world has ever seen. And you might ask, who am I to criticise what he said? I shared that quote with some friends recently, and, and here's how they reacted. It's the created out of nothing thing. Right. How can something be created out of nothing? What, what law of science is that? Okay. So it, it's this idea that the laws of science actually have to be part of something else. Mm. The laws of science didn't just appear from nowhere, right? I ask, what does he mean by fixed? What, is, what does Hawking mean by these things are fixed? Oh, I see. If you accept as I do that like the laws very, of nature are fixed. Seems mm. like a very ambiguous term. Are they themselves just, do they themselves just necessarily exist? Or like, are they like a brute fact okay. of nature? Um, yeah, I guess that'd be my only point. Are they brute facts? Are they necessary? Are they eternal themselves? Or do they have some type of origin? Okay. You know, not all scientists think Hawking's understanding of the universe actually makes sense. John Lennox is professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford. And he says that there are three big problems with Professor Hawking's idea. First, there's a self-contradiction at the centre of it. You see, Hawking says that because there are natural laws, the universe will create itself out of nothing. But hang on a minute. Hawking just said that natural laws, like gravity, for example, already existed. So that's not nothing. Because the laws that are there point to something, not nothing. So to Professor Hawking's understanding, the universe is not creating itself out of nothing. And yet he seems to be saying that it is. Do you see the contradiction there? Here's the second problem. Laws actually can't create anything. Why? Well, laws just describe what happens in nature. They don't bring it about. It was Isaac Newton who discovered the law of gravity and he described gravity in terms of a law and what gravity does. But he didn't create gravity. It seems to me that clever theories and ideas don't bring matter or energy into existence at all. But there's a third problem with Professor Hawking's idea and I think it's possibly going to be the biggest of all. Something cannot create itself. So when Hawking says that the universe will create itself from nothing, this statement is logically incoherent. Why? Well, to create itself, the universe would have to already exist. But surely we're trying to account for the fact that the universe began to exist. It can't already exist in order to create itself. Do you see the problem there? Now you might reply and say something like, okay then, well, maybe the universe didn't actually begin to exist after all. Perhaps it's always been here, like an eternal universe, maybe. Well, that's the idea that the ancient Greeks worked with, an eternal universe. But today, our cosmologists have observable evidence that the universe did have a beginning. And we're going to talk about that evidence in a few minutes, so stay with me on that. Basically, 
Scientists know that we don't live in an eternal universe. We live in a universe that did begin to exist about approximately 14 billion years ago. My friend asked me to point to a real, tangible supernatural event. Well, here it is. The creation of the universe. You see, at the point where all time and space came into existence, this is the moment that all nature came into existence. So, when we think about why nature might have come to exist, that means we're thinking about something outside of nature. Or, to put it another way, supernature, a supernatural cause. An expert in these issues is the philosopher Dr William Lane Craig. He's research professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology and Houston Baptist University. He did his PhD at Birmingham University in the UK and he has other degrees from Wheaton College, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and Ludwig Maximilians in Germany. Dr Craig's developed a way of talking about the beginning of the universe that was originally proposed by a medieval Muslim scholar. You might have heard of it. It's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. And in a recent lecture that he gave on the Kalam, Dr Craig described it this way. Here is a simple formulation of that argument. One, if the universe began to exist, then there is a transcendent cause which brought the universe into being. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore there is a transcendent cause which brought the universe into being. By the universe, I mean that reality which is studied by contemporary cosmology. That is to say, all of uh, contiguous physical reality which currently takes the form of space-time and its contents. So it's a pretty simple argument, right? He's saying that everything that begins to exist has to have a cause. So, for example, when a Ford car rolls off the production line, it's got a prior cause. All the engineers that built it. Dr Craig goes on to say that the universe began to exist and therefore he concludes that the universe also has to have a cause. But that cause has got to be transcendent, so basically beyond all space and time and nature. Beyond anything we can experience inside of the natural universe. Now, it strikes me that that is starting to sound a little bit like a description of God. I described the Kalam argument to a group of friends recently. Let's listen in to, to how they reacted. Well, looking at the scientific evidence that you just said, things like the redshift, if we, if we can see that the universe must have had a start, therefore yep. it must, must have begun to exist, um, then just the logic here is that you know, that that must have been caused by something. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I don't know, I don't know how else to, to say it. I mean, to me, it, like you say, it, it just seems very logical and self-explanatory. But of course, it has to be outside of the thing that's becoming it that comes into existence, doesn't it? So it's got to be something that is outside of the universe. Right. So 
what you're saying, Andy, is you're, you don't want to make the same mistake that Stephen Hawking did. You don't want to confuse what the universe is with why the universe is here or what the cause of the universe is. Yeah, that's an important point. Yeah, because when it says whatever begins to exist has a cause, that implies that the cause preceded mm. what begins to exist. So, yeah, if, um, I don't know, if Andy paints a, paints a picture, you know, he's, he's, the picture begins to exist, but Andy has to precede the picture in order for it to be created or for, sorry, in order for it to begin to exist, Andy has to be there first. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, it just gets back to what I said. You can't, something cannot come out of nothing. So something had to be there before the beginning started. For sure. Yeah. Okay, interesting thoughts there, but let's look at the Kalam argument a bit more closely now. The first premise of the argument says, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Here's Dr. Craig again. Now I take it that premise one of this argument is obviously true. Notice the premise one does not presuppose a particular analysis of the causal relation. In fact, you could eliminate any reference to a cause in this argument altogether by simply rephrasing the first premise. If the universe began to exist, then there is a transcendent entity which brought the universe into existence. So the first premise requires no particular analysis of causation. It simply requires that the universe did not come into being uncaused. And that, I think, is surely reasonable. For the universe to come into being without a cause of any sort would be to come into existence from nothing. And that is worse than magic. Although some scientists have irresponsibly claimed that physics can explain the origin of the universe from nothing, what you inevitably discover is that they are using the word nothing to refer to a physical system which simply undergoes a change of state. Craig seems to be saying that we just, we don't see things popping into existence in our lives without some kind of cause. You know, when a magician pulls a rabbit out of a hat, the rabbit might seem to appear out of thin air, but at least on the stage you've got a hat and you've got a magician to put his hand in there. But think back to what Stephen Hawking said. He proposed that the universe brought itself into existence. So no hat, no magician. That just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Also, remember that when scientists like Hawking say that the universe came from nothing, they actually redefine what the word nothing means. They don't mean nothing is nothing. What they say is that actually nothing is something. The natural laws that already exist prior to the universe. 
So you could argue that they've ducked the real issue here and they've avoided the idea that the universe came into existence at all. It seems to me that in the first premise we've said something pretty reasonable. We've said everything that begins to exist has to have a cause. But that takes us to the second premise of the argument, which is also pretty straightforward. And it says this, the universe began to exist. This claim has been strongly confirmed by a number of scientists in the 20th century. Albert Einstein discovered his special and general theories of relativity in the early 20th century. But, but his theories led to a universe which seemed to be either expanding or contracting. And Einstein didn't like that idea, so he, he fudged his numbers to make the universe look eternal. However, during the 1920s, Alexander Friedman and Georges Lemaitre took Einstein's work and they built upon it and they too observed an expanding universe. And then, in 1929, the idea of an expanding universe was confirmed by Edwin Hubble, who noticed that through his telescope, light from distant galaxies was a, a redder colour than it should be. This has come to be known as redshift. And this redshift in the light was due to the stretching of the light waves as all the galaxies in the sky appear to be moving away from planet Earth. Dr Craig has described it like this. It appeared that we are at the centre of a cosmic explosion and all the other galaxies are flying away from us at fantastic speeds. Yet it's important to realise that the Earth is not at the centre of this explosion. How does that work? Well, imagine for me, imagine you're holding a balloon. It's not been inflated yet. And you get out your pen and on the flat rubber surface, you start to draw planets and galaxies on the surface of the balloon. Now, imagine you put your lips to the, to the balloon and you start to inflate it. What happens? All the planets that you drew on the surface of the balloon start moving apart from each other as the balloon inflates. And the surface of the balloon starts moving outwards. Well, that's a bit like what scientists think is happening during the inflation of the universe. And this Friedman-Lemaitre model eventually came to be known in the 20th century as the Big Bang. Here's Dr. Craig again. Now, tonight, we're not focusing on the philosophical arguments for premise two. Rather, what's emerged during the 20th century is remarkable empirical confirmation of the second premise from the evidence of astrophysical cosmogony. Two independent but closely interrelated lines of physical evidence support premise two. Evidence from the expansion of the universe and evidence from the second law of thermodynamics. Now, in saying that the cosmogonic evidence confirms premise two, I am not saying that we are certain that premise two is true. Too many people mistakenly equate knowledge with certainty. When they say that we do not know that the universe began to exist, what they really mean is that we are not certain that the universe began to exist. 
But of course, certainty is not the relevant standard here. The question is whether premise two is more plausible in light of the evidence than it's contradictory. As Sean Carroll reminds us, science isn't in the business of proving things. Rather, science judges the merits of competing models in terms of their simplicity, clarity, comprehensiveness, and fit to the data. Unsuccessful theories are never disproven, as we can always concoct elaborate schemes to save the phenomena. They just fade away as better theories gain acceptance. Science cannot force you to accept the beginning of the universe. You can always concoct elaborate schemes to explain away the evidence. But those schemes will not fare very well when judged by the aforementioned scientific virtues. What he's saying is that at the end of the day, the scientific data that we've got makes us as sure as we can be that the universe actually had a beginning point. Science judges the ability of competing models to explain the data. And the best explanation of the data is that matter, time, and all the natural forces had a beginning. We don't live in an eternal universe. So let's recap. We've said this. First, everything that begins to exist has a cause. And the general wisdom says that based on the data. The universe had a beginning. But what has all this got to do with showing evidence that God exists and that God's done supernatural things? Well, the beginning of the universe is a supernatural event because it's about bringing nature into being where there was no nature. Because the universe had a beginning, therefore the universe also has to have a cause. But if you think about it, surely that cause must be immaterial. The cause can't be a physical thing. Why? Because all physical matter came into being at the beginning of the universe. Also, surely the cause has to transcend both space and time. Why? Well, because space and time came into existence at the beginning of the universe. It's tough to get our minds around it, but Dr. Craig goes further. He says the cause of the universe has also got to be a personal agent who is uncaused. In other words, while the universe had a beginning, the personal cause of the universe didn't have a beginning. How do we know that the universe was not brought into being by a set of impersonal, necessary and sufficient conditions? One of the arguments that I've given for why the cause of the universe must be personal is that this is the only way in which to explain how you could have the origin of a temporal effect with a beginning from a cause which exists timelessly and hence eternally. Just think about it for a moment. If the cause of the universe were simply an impersonal, mechanically operating set of necessary and sufficient conditions, then if the cause is given permanently and timelessly, 
why isn't the effect then also permanently given? How could the cause exist without its effect? If the cause is truly sufficient for the production of its effect, then if the causal conditions are permanently present, eternally present, then the effect should be eternally and permanently present as well. How can the cause exist but not its effect? Well, it seems to me that there's only one way out of this dilemma, and that is to say that the cause of the origin of the universe is a personal agent endowed with freedom of the will, who is therefore able to create spontaneously a new effect without any antecedent determining conditions. Philosophers call this kind of causation agent causation. And because the agent is free, he can freely and spontaneously create an effect without any antecedent determining conditions. For example, a man who has been sitting from eternity could freely will to stand up, and thus you would have a new effect arise from an eternally existing cause. So in the case of the origin of the universe, it seems to me that the only way to explain how we can have a temporal effect with a beginning arise from an eternal cause is if that cause is a personal agent endowed with freedom of the will and therefore able spontaneously to create a new effect in time. And thus we are brought not simply to a first uncaused cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. What he's saying is the only way you can get a universe with space and time from a cause that's beyond space and time is for that cause to be a person. Well, Dr. Craig says that we need a timeless personal cause. And that personal cause has got free will. They can choose to create a new effect whenever they wish to. The cause of the universe is a maximally great being who necessarily exists and is therefore outside of both space and time. So when we say he's eternal, we're not guilty of treating him differently in an inappropriate way. No, it's very appropriate to treat him differently from nature because this agent is outside the boundaries of nature. This agent's got to be pretty powerful, right? And doesn't that sound like the Bible's idea of the God who created the universe out of nothing? At the start of this podcast, I said that my friend wanted some supernatural evidence for the existence of God. Well, haven't we pointed him to just that evidence? God as an explanation for the supernatural creation of our universe? What do you think? You know, I asked my group of friends what what they would take away from this discussion about the Kalam argument. Here's what they said. I think I'd be confident to talk about the fact that the universe must have started. And so just draw that person to think, I guess to Ollie's question, you know, where, where did it all come from? It's, it, had, it had to start. Yeah. Um, it didn't just start out of nothing. Yes. So, you know, in really sort of quite straightforward terms, I think I'd, 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 I'd uh, feel more confident to say that as well and, and, and be able to say, yeah, you know, redshift and, you know, I'm going to look up some of these things as well and point, point people towards the scientific theories that 
that, that they would possibly um, engage with? Sure. I'd definitely say, look at how do you how do you think this all began? Mm. This week we've seen an argument for God's existence. I think it's a pretty compelling one, but that doesn't mean there aren't great counter arguments out there. People are going to push back against the argument for God and they'll do it in a number of ways. But here's a really big one. If God exists, isn't he supposed to be loving and powerful? Well, in that case, why is there so much suffering in the world? Well, that's the question we're going to look at next week. I'll see you then. Thank you.